I mean, you know, as a, as a black person in fashion, you already know how amazing our contributions were. And I just love that even in these times, I continue to learn, right? And to hear these stories told, it's just food for the soul. It just makes my heart beat. And that's what it's all about because, you know, fashion would exist without us, but so many people don't know that. Yep. So oh, you're you're already sounding like the answers. Like this is like perfect. Like you're already like queued up. You're you've got it. <laughs> this is just how it usually sounds. Like just every time. <laughs> I'm Kimberly Jenkins. You're listening to the Invisible Seam where we open up the archive of American fashion and celebrate its Black contributions. This is our special bonus episode, a conversation with Randy Cousin. I really hope you've enjoyed the podcast. This project has been in the works for a long time, and it's been such a pleasure to see it become a reality. Fashion academia and the fashion industry don't often talk to each other, but that's exactly what we did with this podcast. The Invisible Seam wouldn't exist without the support and enthusiasm of my friend and partner at Tommy Hilfiger's People's Place program, Randy Cousin. You've heard Randy in the first and last episodes. With this bonus episode, I wanted to break from our format and just sit down with Randy for a conversation. We talk about Randy's influences in fashion, why representation matters, the danger of erasure, and so much more. So... Here is our bonus episode, Loose Threads. My name is Randy Cousin. I'm Senior Vice President of Product Concept and proud leader of the People's Place Program at Tommy Hilfiger. Uh, what you should know about me, I am a kid who's from Youngstown, Ohio, who just could only dream to be in fashion. And I often say I'm a unicorn and I shouldn't be here. Um, and I'm so lucky to be here, but now that I am here, I want to create the change that we all want to see. Representation matters, and this is just some of the greatest work I've ever done in my career to make sure that people like me and that look like me, past, present, and future, are seen. Beautiful. So what are your first memories of falling in love with clothes and fabrics? (sighs) You know, I have to say, um, I owe my fashion gene to my mother, who I would say just always just had this amazing affinity for fashion. I mean, whether it was suits or clothing or textiles. I mean, my mother was a sewer, and to see her just kind of flip through Vogue magazines and to, you know, go to like the Ebony Fashion Fair when um, I was a kid and have her talk about it and just, you know, dream, um, I I caught that bug from her. Usually when you're a little black kid and, and you could only dream to be in fashion, it's so important to see people that look like you. And I didn't see that. And I just remember fantasizing, like, you know, I want to be in fashion. I want to do this. Being scared because I didn't know how I could be uh, a person that's a part of the system that made my heart beat. Um, If it was like music singing to me. And I'll never forget um, going through my mom's uh, magazines. I saw this dynamic figure named Andre Leon Talley someone who colored outside the lines and wore these bold prints and it felt like a dress, but it was tribal and it was amazing and the energy. And it reconfirmed it for me when I saw Andre Leon Talley on America's Next Top Model and just saw him just being this amazing figure that just made me say, 
this is someone who looks like me, not only as a black man, but as a black gay man. And how could I not be a part of this system? And I think we often take for granted how important it is to see people that look like you to feel that you can get there. And I didn't know at the time, without the contribution of people that look like me, fashion would not be what it is today. And unfortunately, those stories go so untold, and it is erasure, and it's something that we need to change. So our second episode, Rhythm and Muse, focused on the relationship between music and fashion in the 90s and early 2000s. We spent some time in that episode reflecting on how music videos were a chance to see the latest styles. How closely intertwined were music and fashion for you coming of age in the 90s? I mean, I have always had a love of music since I was a kid. If you saw how some of the most prolific music artists that I loved back then just wore, you know, sportswear and just gave it a swag. And I remember growing up with brands, um, American sportwear brands, whether it was Ralph or Tommy or I wore Nike or, you know, I had the starter jacket. But, mm-hmm. and for me, you know, the way that we would flip it as kids of color, where it was all about like having that fresh new. Um, you know, uniform when we would go to school on the first day of school or for picture day. And not many people resonate with that who are, you know, black kids or kids of color, but it meant so much to us. It was a rite of passage and not only in um, being able to wear that fresh new um, fit, but to also how we wore it and how we we styled it. And I think in a lot of cases, um, you know, that credit is not always given. I think if you look at what is American sportswear, American sportswear is so further than what we give it credit for. I think um, whether you're a kid growing up in Brooklyn uh, or whether you're, you know, a kid riding on a on a, a horse in Colorado, America is such a diverse, vast, um, celebrated culture, but it's not always celebrated in the eyes of people of color or especially black Americans. And I think if you look at w- the contribution that we've given in this style, whether it's how it's worn, whether and how it's flipped, whether and how it's um, designed, uh, it's not th- that credit's not always given. And I think if I look back to some of these big music artists and, and rappers who really, um, I wanted to be like them. I, I wanted to be Snoop in 1994, singing Lottie Dottie on, on SNL, rocking the Tommy rugby. I mean, that, that was everything to us as kids. And it's something that still is synonymous with how we grew up. It, it's important that our contributions and how we looked at those clothes and how we flipped it and how we rocked it, especially in the streets, to celebrate it. And, and, and without us embracing it, I just don't think that uh, American Sports Tour would be what it is today. And so this led to you actually going into fashion. Some people love it, and they see it, you know, on TV, and they're like, that's cool. But you actually took it, you know, to that level, and you were like, I'm I'm going into the industry. The number one question I get from Black fashion students or even emerging Black professionals is— how do I get into the industry? You know, we even have a, a phrase called breaking into the industry because it's so difficult. Listen, I'm lucky. And, you know, I, I grew up in, in the hood in, in a red line district, Youngstown, Ohio. If it wasn't for my amazing mother who beat the system to ensure that I could go to a school where I would even be noticed by a college, I would not be where I am today. But the reality is it shouldn't be this hard to get in this industry. The divine steps that were ordered for me, I'm so blessed and so thankful having the opportunity, you 
you know, to go to college, my university, having an opportunity to start my career at Abercrombie & Fitch back when they were printing money. And you can imagine having an ability to work for the greats like Mike Jeffries and just learn the ins and outs and how to look at fashion like a CEO and, and to think like a designer and act like a merchant and, and the supply chain and all of that amazing pedigree. But the reality is, is that there's so much opportunity that's out there, that's out there for kids of color, specifically black kids. And we don't have those opportunities. And those opportunities continue today to go unknown. And if I look back on my life, I I can imagine not doing this, but I do also understand and realize the struggle. And I think with us going through the largest movement of our lifetime and our parents' lifetime, which was the amplification of the BLM movement, it just kind of like opened up and raised the veil on a lot of the challenges that we've always known existed as people of color, but have gone relatively untold because we didn't always feel that we had the agency to talk about it. And I think now's an opportunity where even myself... I sometimes pinch myself that I'm a senior black senior vice president in a in, in a major brand, but I don't see enough people that look like me standing next to me or in front of me. And the reality is a lot of us like me had to work four times hard to get here. So why wouldn't you open up the doors when if anyone can color outside the lines and work hard and 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 make this industry the bright, shiny star that it is, it is black America. It's just the black experience in general. And it's really interesting because I, until I even sat down during the pandemic and and started to read and listen to podcasts, and I even remember looking at an article about Kimberly Jenkins and the work she was doing for the Fashion Race Database, that was food for my soul because there was so much history as a black American in fashion and the contribution that the people before me have given to this industry that even I didn't know. And that hurt me. And I said, I have to learn more. And as I learned more, I just realized that, wow, this industry that I have loved so long, that I've dedicated so much work to, trends, colors, patterns, history, fabrics, it wouldn't exist without the Black experience. And that erasure hurt me. And I said, okay, what can I do as a Black leader in fashion to help change that? And here we are today. And I think, you know, I want to be able to work with great partners like you, Kim. I want to be able to do the work where we can educate ourselves just on the history and, and shout at the rooftops about the Black experience and, and what we've done to make fashion what it is today. And that is not only going to help to drive forward and move forward and make that change that we all want to see in the industry. And it starts today. I was having an earlier conversation with emerging designer Connor McKnight. And what made me smile about the collection that he was building was he he knew his history. He was using these building blocks, I call it a fashion, which is like those archetypal pieces, the trench coat, the men's trouser, um, the button-down shirt, the bar, the varsity pullover. I mean, he knew all that stuff from like 50 years ago, and he was like reviving them in his collection. So one question I have for you is, in your mind, what are like the key essentials like in in that American sportswear and even streetwear wardrobe? I mean, listen, I think uh, American sportswear is everywhere. It, it just seeps through history, past, present, future. I mean, you got to have the white shirt, the Oxford shirt. I'm even thinking of, it's so funny because my mom recently sent me pictures 
of the stuff that I wore as kids. And it hasn't changed that much. It's just different how you rock it. You know, you got to have the white T-shirt. You got to have that pair of jeans that fits perfectly, right? You know, you got to have that beautiful black leather motorcycle jacket. But there's nothing like the old school rugby that we used to love back in the day, the crispy rugby that we would wear for, for um, you know, school pictures, first day of school. You know, you got to have the puffer jacket, y'all, you know, especially a little bit oversized, preferably in a color. And, of course, when it comes to your Air Force Ones, what can you do without the perfect white, crispy pair of sneakers? You know, what I love about fashion is that it continues to change and evolve, but it really goes back to the same staples that we all know. But it's just so fun to see so many designers today put their mark on the white shirt, put their mark on the chino, put their mark on the polo or the rugby or the puffer or the leather jacket. It's beautiful because those are staples, but, but what what designers can do to take that and make it their own, that's a beautiful thing. And when I see, especially, um, you know, these great black designers of today, and as I should say also of tomorrow, and how they flip it, not only in how they design it, but how they put it together, I I just love how, you know, there are no rules anymore. Um, And as long as you have the confidence and the swag, the rocket, who can tell you no? In your mind, how has streetwear changed over the years to you? Well, I, I I just think what's changed is that you see everybody embracing it. It is everywhere. It is in luxury. It is in sport. It's in sportswear. I mean, it's just everywhere, right? And I think that, you know, mass fashion just saw just an opportunity where it connects to the level of cool. And streetwear is cool because it connects to the streets. And that also connects to the Black experience. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I would go to my mom, with my mom to flea markets. And that's when I became a huge Dapper Dan fan and how Dapper Dan would just take, figured out this technique of how to print on leather and how to take luxury brands that already existed and just add an essence of cool and street to it that also connected to music. And until recently, how often, you know, uh, do um, pioneers like Dapper Dan not get recognized for a technique that is now widely seen in the industry, whether it is in clothing or small leather goods? It's just a perfect example of 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 how that erasure can happen, you know, and, you know, it, it's great to now see Dapper um, doing his thing um, and, and being at the helm of a brand like Gucci and being able to, um, you know, enlight the future and the present on that contribution and what history looks like. I mean, history is a gift, right? We need to do a better job, I think, in fashion of going back to the past and celebrating the contributions of everyone who made it for what it is. Uh, and, I, and I think that's one of the biggest changes you see. It is everywhere where I think we still have an advantage just to just give credit where it's due and, and, and making what it is today uh, and telling those stories and shining it to the rooftop um, I, I was I, I so fondly remember when Beyonce was talking about historically black colleges and universities, which then connects to like varsity wear and sweatshirts and varsity jackets. And a lot of people don't often realize that when you talk about prep and Americana, American sportswear, it, it, it's just as much a, a part of the historically black college and university system as it is an Ivy League school institution. So I think it's important to not just talk about one, but talk about all. And, and it's great within the black experience because it's always then connected to art, fashion, music, entertainment, and it's and it just makes your heart beat and it makes you smile. And, uh, and, and I just want to see those stories and the contributions of people that made it for what it is celebrated so that people don't have this aha moment. You know, I've had these aha moments um, and I, I, it's a shame to me I didn't know these stories, you know? I'm so happy with how we've worked together to change that with this show by talking about people whose hard work and innovation made long-standing impacts on the industry. 
like Willie Smith and Patrick Kelly. If you look at like Willie Smith and Patrick Kelly and just what they did for streetwear back in the day and the color and the prints and the boldness and the color blocking and the silhouettes and again, how you would take something that is traditionally known as American sportswear and just give it uh, a, a new flair and, and just a new attitude that just uh, made it for what it is today. And, and you know, I think it's, it's so unfortunate that, you know, I was talking to, to some young creatives about a year ago and they had never heard of Patrick or Willie and that just made my heart cry a bit, you know? And we need to celebrate those stories. These are people who um, are a part of history, you know, Black people who, without their contributions, we would not be here. And we need to shout their names to the rooftop and say their names constantly over and over and over again and, and make sure that their history is not lost. It's interesting because when you do go back to the hi history and you look at Willie and Patrick, for example, and then you start to see um, a lot of things that happened with music artists back then and videos and the rise of MTV, their contributions are written all over that but we didn't know that, you know? So I, 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 I rise to the occasion like a lot of us in fashion today to ensure that their names are known and that we do deep dive into that history. Stephen Burroughs is another one. The, the cup runneth over with the strong, dynamic, historical black leaders in fashion, but we need to know more about their contributions each and every day. I mean, think of also people even before that, like Ann Lowe. I, I, I recently, you know, read about Ann about six months ago and didn't realize that she did Jacqueline Kennedy's wedding dress. Obviously, we know the Kennedys and we know Jacqueline Kennedy and we know when um, the, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy's wedding. Uh, and Ann Lowe was the designer of her wedding dress. And when, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis at the time was asked who her who designed her dress, she said a colored designer. She didn't say her name. Many people don't know this, but the brides, many of the bridesmaids' dresses were lost in a fire. And Anne had to take her own resources to redo those dresses. And rose to the occasion, worked four times as hard, and got it done. But still, a moment in history in which she did not get the credit that she was deserved. Perfect. And, and I'm right there with you. And also speaking on the education end, it's just... Imagine being a black student and then paying this tuition money and just sitting through yeah. fashion history class yeah. and actually walking away believing that no one who looked like you was ever leaving a mark in fashion history in the timeline. Yeah. And that's how hundreds of black students are leaving programs over the last couple decades. They don't even know this. All these names that you said, it's just going to be... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and this is why representation matters, right? Just because it wasn't in a history book 20 years ago doesn't mean that it doesn't matter now. And, and Kim, you know, hats off to you because when I remember Real Story reading about you and it was food for soul to me because growing up in this industry as a black man in fashion, I walked into boardrooms, I walked into meetings, and I didn't see people that looked like me. I, I, I saw fashion, I saw trend, I, I traveled the world, and I saw trends that I didn't know people that looked like me made and created and made cool, made dynamic and made popular, but weren't given the credit for it. So when I read about the work that you do in the Fashion Race Database, I was like, I, first of all, I have to know her. <laughs> I want to know more. And I wish that this type of resource existed when I was starting off my career in fashion um, because I think for sure I, I could have been a voice in the room to say, no, this is where this came from. No, this is where this trend came from. Uh, no, this is the contribution of that designer or that artist. 
in 2016, when I started working on the fashion and race database, it was an outgrowth of me wanting to unlearn and learn too. I was like, wait a minute, there's just a lot missing here. And so that 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 was a labor of love to be like, where are all these stories? Let me put all this together. But I digress. Industry. You keep working, girl. Oh, keep it working. <laughs> it, it doesn't stop. It don't Can't stop. It won't stop. Thank you, Diddy. <laughs> when I was having a conversation with Law Roach, Law was just really making it a point of saying more than one. And so I'm thinking about like the only one. You know, there was—I've assigned it in my fashion and race class. There was this 1994 article written by Hilton Owls for The New Yorker that is a very transparent story about Andre Leontel. I don't think Andre was the biggest fan of that article when it came out. But it was called The Only One. And students who were in my fashion and race class are like, Kim, I remember. Oh, you know, it just shook them to their core reading that article. And to this day— um, for me, oftentimes as a professor, being the only black person, like not even a student in the room sometimes when I'm teaching, um, and, and you know, it's pervasive throughout the industry, people who are, especially when you move up the ranks yeah. into the C-suite, being the only one. So could you talk to me a bit about how you feel when you're the only black person in the room or it seems like you're at a level where it's all on you and you really kind of have to— there's not enough of us, so you're like, well, I guess it's going to be me. I echo what Law said when I say there needs to be more than one. More than one. More than one designer at the top. More than one stylist who is celebrated. More than one black face in the C-suite or the boardroom. More than one. And why not? I didn't always have the comfort to talk about my story or where I came from. I think a lot of people meet me and assume that I went, come from some rich family in some Ivy League school and maybe they paint that picture because it makes them comfortable. No, that's not my story. My story was struggle. My story was not easy, but I am here. And I am lucky and fortunate to be here, but it should not be that hard for people who look like me to be at the top of fashion. Uh, and, and if we truly want to see fashion move forward, there has to be more than one. And we have to stop um, always making space for just one. And I think that happens a lot. There is so much talent out there that can be the top of fashion houses, that can be at the top of the boardroom, that are strategic, that are smart, um, that are creative. So make space and make room for reality. Ensuring that there is more than one, it just makes my heart beat. And I think that we all collectively can hold hands and say that. So when I hear that Law said more than one, it doesn't surprise me because I think it's a, as leaders in the fashion industry, I think it's something we all feel, right? It's just going to move us forward. It's just going to make us better. It's just going to make fashion brighter if you make space and make room so that we can grow, so that we can lead, and so that we can be your partners. And again, I say, why not? What do you have to lose? Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you haven't yet, please rate us and leave a review. It'll help more people learn about these stories. The Invisible Seam is an original podcast created in partnership with the Fashion and Race Database, Tommy Hilfiger's People's Place Program, and Pineapple Street Studios. I founded the Fashion and Race Database in 2017 to center and amplify the voices of people who've been racialized and marginalized in fashion. Our work, like this podcast, focuses on illuminating underexamined histories and addressing racism throughout the fashion system. I'm grateful to the Tommy Hilfiger People's Place Program for their support of this project. 
The People's Place program exists to advance and support underrepresented communities in fashion and beyond. They've made this show possible. My co-visionaries are Randy Cousin, SVP Product Concepts and People's Place Program, and Dominique Baycoat, Manager, Earned Media Communications and People's Place Program. And from Pineapple Street Studios, our executive producers for The Invisible Seam are J.N. Barry, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Hemia Freeman is our production coordinator, and Yinka Rickford-Engwin is our associate producer. The Invisible Seam is produced by Stephen Key, Sophia Steinert-Evoy, and me, Kimberly Jenkins. Our editor is Aaron Edwards. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. We are engineered to perfection, or very close to it, by Davey Sumner. Original music by Oaktown Soul and additional tunes from Epidemic Sound. Terry Agins, Shamira Covington, Kimberly Drew, Nick Nelson, and Miko Underwood reviewed episodes as part of our advisory committee. Thanks for sharing your expertise and perspective and giving thoughtful notes. Legal services for Pineapple Street Studios by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers and Katie Ali Mohammadi at Donaldson Caliph Perez. Fact-checking by Will Tavlin. Our show art was designed by Kurt Courtney and Lauren Vieira at Cadence 13. Special thanks to Sharon Bardalis, Emerald O'Brien, Mara Davis, and Ken Maiden. Thanks for listening.